Arlene Live returns to the airwaves as she rejoins the KUAM Podcast Network. She is a seasoned journalist and broadcast talk show host known for her intriguing conversation with historians, linguists, anthropologists, archaeologists, cultural practitioners, and artisans. Arlene embraces the cultural phenomena of the Western Pacific because of her Pacific Island roots with her family history in Palau, Yap, Saipan, and Tinian. She has always promoted one Micronesia, and you're invited along on this continuing discovery of what connects island people. There's never a dull moment with Arlene, a skilled ethnographer, oral historian, and documentarian. Join Arlene Live right here on the KUAM Podcast Network and on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and Micronesia Publishing on YouTube. From the KUAM Podcast Network, this is Arlene Live with conversation on island issues facing Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the rest of Micronesia, and the Western Pacific. Now, here's Arlene. This is Arlene Steffi, and I've had the great privilege of being invited back by KUAM to be one of their podcast hosts again. And that's a privilege that I really am grateful to have. I like the fact that they think that the material that I can contribute to the podcast team is significant enough. And of course, with my background as an ethnographer and oral historian, I have met many interesting people over the many years. One of these people is Dr. Miguel Villar. Dr. Miguel Villar most recently is a senior program officer for the National Geographic Society and the lead scientist on the geographic project. And that's how we met. But he also was the 29th speaker for the University of Guam's presidential lecture in 2016. And then again in 2017, this man won the Governor's Humanities Award for research and publication from the Northern Marianas Humanities Council. In 2019, he was awarded the Michael A. Little Early Career Award from the Human Biology Association for his work on human biology and genetic diversity. And you're really making a name for yourself in this corner of human interest and history. So today, Dr. Villar's fieldwork takes him into Micronesia, Melanesia, South America, Mesoamerica, and the Caribbean, whereas the laboratory, he studies the modern genetic diversity of human populations from Micronesia, Melanesia, Central and South America, and the Caribbean. He also researches genetics of domestic animals, which is one of the reasons why we hooked up together. It's chickens, dogs, and horses, and the cultural and biological implications of animal domestication and human evolution, population, history, and migration. I actually met Miguel first through just a project with Koji Lum. I was his doctoral student, and I think we met originally, you know, online, um, given that we collaborated on a paper, you helped us. Uh, collect samples for for a paper that Dr. Luman and myself and a small team, and you're included in this team, where we're studying Pacific chickens. Yes. And uh, that's sort of how we first contacted each other. 
um, and you you helped us collect some samples, and then that became research on the on the chicken introduction to various islands in the Pacific. Uh, I'm real tickled about that because even though chickens are birds, I don't like photographing chickens. <laughs> <laughs> However, that is how we met, and it's it's really been a very nice friendship from that period especially because of the more recent work that you did with the National Geographic uh, Genome Program. I think that's when you and I not only met face-to-face, but have really been more in contact since then. I flew up and and had the privilege of staying at Koji's uh, house, and I interviewed him there. But with you, our interest is more shared about the people of the Mariana Islands. And as an anthropologist, and of course, you're, you're now a PhD, you've done a lot of work on genetics with regard to the people. They want to know what their family histories are, things like that. And although we cannot pinpoint our family history that far back in the area that you're currently working in, it does inform us of a lot of the information that we don't have, that we don't know about ourselves. I'm sure your your students call you Dr. Miguel or Dr. Villar, but for the general public here, you've always introduced yourself as Miguel. That's correct. I um I <laughs> I almost feel sort of strange when somebody calls me Dr. Villar, but in, in the classroom, I do use that because I sort of have an authority position um, over you know when I'm teaching and, and grading and, and correcting students but no, absolutely we we've met as collaborators and please call me Miguel absolutely and and all the colleagues I've met on my various uh, trips to, to Guam and to the northern Marianas I vote you yeah, absolutely always introduce myself as, as Miguel. I was looking through the photographs and it was 2017 that you were last in our home sitting here in my home office at my <laughs> desk in front of my office library and I thought wow five years that that doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> It, it doesn't seem that long ago. No, you're absolutely right. And um, I see pictures of myself um, then and now, and, you know, I have, I'm grayer and, you know, <laughs> and we all, we all sort of have aged over the, over the years and these last couple of years with, with COVID, it's been a lot of stress and a lot of, yeah. um, a lot of dealing with, with difficulties, but yeah, it doesn't feel that long. And, and I think between the years of uh, 2013 and about 2019, um, I traveled to, to Guam and, and Saipan primarily, um, at least five or six times, and and I met you. I think from the very first time I, I went there in 2013, um, we we met a few times, and I think 2017 was the was a year that we we uh, went to your home and and, and shared some together, and and yeah, no, it's been always a a warm welcome for me. 2019, unfortunately, was the last time I was there because it was you know it's COVID 19, right? That was a year that ended that year that that we started uh, going through this shared global pandemic that we're in right now still. I know. These are very challenging times. And I also am wearing my my <laughs> pandemic hairdo. I've, I've totally gone gray. I've decided no more beauty shops and no more dye. But that's okay. Uh, I, I have no problem with that. I, I think it the, the pandemic helped me to see that there are things that are more important. So, Miguel, everyone has sunk their teeth into your work when it comes to the genetic diversity of the people of the Mariana Islands. But I know that you, the end of 2020 or the middle of 2020, when we were all brought together on a Zoom conference 
a lot of anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, because there is a, a concern over the three elements that determine the origin of a people. And that, of course, is archaeology, genetics, and then the linguistics. Mm-hmm. And these three elements, Miguel, in many cases, they contradict each other. Right. And this is one of the reasons why continued study is so important, because you can't say with some certainty that, yes, this is the way it was. For example, one of the findings that you and a, a lot of the others that are working on this project, you're going to be updating again because mm-hmm. of new findings. Tell us right. a, a little bit about that, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the three major venues of study for, for especially the questions that I ask about the, the first settlers in the Marianas Islands um, and where they came from are those questions that all fall within anthropology. It's archaeology, uh, linguistics, a study of languages, and then my field, which is the genetic anthropology, study of people's DNA. Um, uh, and I did it primarily by studying modern DNA. Um, and I worked with uh, close to 100 different um, people. Uh, most of them were uh, Chamoru uh, from uh, primarily from Guam, uh, although a few were from Saipan as well. And, um, and, and so but what we are seeing now is a new discipline. And I say new, it's about 10 years old, called ancient DNA, where it's, I see it almost as a merge of archaeology and genetics coming together. And so what, what's been happening, um, one paper was published in 2020 that created a sort of a a slightly different narrative than the one myself and my colleagues have said about about origins based we think primarily on the on the modern dna so what's happening now um and that meeting that you talked about was sort of a a preview uh, of larger research that we're doing this year we're hopefully going to finish it this year 2022 on ancient dna a large um, study uh, of ancient dna um, and is led by both archaeologists and geneticists together. And I think that's the beauty of it. And, and it's a very comprehensive look about Guam's history, going from um, some, some archaeological samples that, that we were able to extract DNA. That's the ancient DNA, extracting DNA from some archaeological samples. Those, some of them go back 2,000 or more years. So to the, to the earliest, some of the earliest peoples of of the Marianas 2,000 to 3,000 years ago. And some of them are more recent. We call them closer to the Lati period. Um, so we have sort of a nice array, a nice sort of se- sequence of, 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 of DNA, including also the ones that worked with me in 2013 and so forth with Genographic, the modern uh, tomorrow, yourself included. <laughs> um, so we have sort of a nice sort of very early, um, a later historical, prehistoric period, um, and then modern. And we can actually take that and see transitions across, across time. And, and we can make inferences about who may have been the first people who may have come in a second wave. And, and, and I think it's going to um, help answer a lot of questions. And, um, and, and like, like science, it may raise more questions. This is what we do. We answer questions that we ra- end up raising more questions. And this is what I love science, about science. So I think you also pointed, you hinted at something that, that sometimes these disciplines with apology, archaeology, language, and genetics contradict each other, or maybe, or maybe don't line up perfectly to answer the questions. And that has been the case um, for the Marianas Islands. And I think that may continue because there's always going to be 
people who, who study languages who feel very strongly about their hypotheses uh, and people who study archaeology that find connections with, with some places that some of us don't clearly see because our genetics point to a different type of story. And that's going to continue. And I think we just, we must sort of share our knowledge with each other, you know, respectfully, um, if we disagree, respectfully disagree and, and have a discourse uh, about this. Um, and, um, and yeah, so that's where we are. And, but this year, 2022 should bring forward this, this larger project that I hope will answer some questions and ultimately we'll probably <laughs> raise some more like everything else. Sure. I completely understand the, the bleeding of all those disciplines. I, and, and that it's not, you can't make it one as more definitive than the other. And it probably will never be able to congeal together uh, because there's so much unknown. However, if the discourse or if the dialogue does not continue in the sense that the studies that are being done are not updated, then the people, the layperson, or those who are not involved in the particular study are going to continue to parrot what they want, whatever their agenda is. The way I see that is dangerous for the layperson because he understands it even less than, you know, you're like two or three levels away from the actual study themselves. And, and to be honest, Miguel, no one is going to sit down and go through your, your study uh, that is being done because it's just sometimes pretty tedious to do that. Mm -hmm. I find myself as much as I have been around it and, and I can just pick up, what do you, what do you mean by this? I can only imagine how they could easily attribute, oh, well, I, my family came from the first, you know, Mm -hmm. migration, because it's important to some people to identify that way. When you talk about migration before the Lati period, and then after the Lati period into the modern history, how do you divide that? What evidence is available to identify those migrations. Is it possible to put it in a time frame? This is Arlene Live, and we've got more coming up in just a moment. We use different statistical methods to sort of estimate the arrival of certain lineages uh, of people, certain branches of, of the human family tree. Or, or but what I'm speaking to specifically is some of my work is in mitochondrial DNA, and um, and I've done some work on the Y chromosome DNA, and those parts of your DNA of genetics are inherited in in a, in a way that you can trace it to a certain point in time in the past and a certain in a certain place in time. However, that is such a minuscule sort of part. It, it shows you patterns of movement, but it's not really who we are. I don't think it's something that can define. A person. So basically, if somebody were to say, I'm descendant from, from the first people that, that arrived here, that's ultimately something we can't say for sure. We weren't there. We're inferring possibly a sequence of arrivals, maybe at least two possible arrivals, we think. But the populations have shrank to the, mo- to the point in different moments in history and prehistory that everybody has connections to possible most likely everybody has connections to the first and most likely everybody has connections to the second. And what I showed in my study 
uh, through the genographic pro project was everybody has connections to the third or the fourth, which include the European, the Spanish that came. And there's even mixture coming in possibly from Mexico that we were sort of a, a process of publishing that may have gene flow, we call it, when you have sort of movement of genes. This is major <laughs> movement across the, um, the Pacific from most likely from Acapulco, um, where there was a ships coming through Guam or many, many bypassed or many stopped in Guam and the Marianas, uh, carrying people of, of Mexican ancestry. So there's probably, if you go to prehistory, there's at least a couple stages. And then historically with the Spanish colonization and domination and, and, and trade that was going on through the, the Western Pacific, there were other waves of migration. And what we see is just about everybody has a combination uh, of those of those different moments of gene flow, different moments of of DNA coming in to the population. So I think it's a false premise to to say uh, I descend I descend from the first people and you don't, based on maybe one marker. Which I, I study the mitochondria, so I'll tell you we can suggest this one came early, this one came late, but that doesn't necessarily mean that some people are descended only from the first. And some people are descended only from the second. That's almost impossible to say. And certainly I would argue is, is false. So that's sort of where the, the, the intricacies lie in, in where mitochondria and Y chromosome, which are sort of these unique, very, very small markers in DNA, help us make these long prehistoric conclusions. However, they are the incorrect way to see priority or order of, of arrival for somebody to, to sort, of, sort of try to identify in that way. If that's helpful, I'm trying to sort of break down those sure. barriers as best I sure. can. And I, I can appreciate that. So if the mitochondrial DNA is too small of a marker to be able to, to identify, what is the correct way to identify? That's a good question. It's, it's, not, too, it's not too small to identify um, us as a researcher to make these conclusions, but I think it's too too small to, for people to be saying this is this is my history based on this less than zero point zero 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 one percent of your DNA, and so ultimately there isn't there isn't and, and I argue against this when in the United States and in, in Puerto Rico where I was born people try and try and try again to use the DNA results that they might get from Genographic or from Ancestry or 23andMe. They use those results to argue for maybe some kind of a, a grant or something based on a certain percentage of, of, of Ancestry, or they'll argue their racial identity based on a certain percentage of their DNA. And that, I think that's a slippery slope to go down. And I argue people against, against that method um, because we are all same species. We all um, came from Africa over 150,000 years ago. We've all um, evolved in, in sort of different ways, but we've all sort of come together and shared genes for tens of thousands of years. And um, so it's almost impossible to say somebody's one thing and not the other, because we all sort of have a mixtures deep down inside. But ultimately, mitochondria, which I think is probably the one tool people have used to say, I came first and you came second, is an incorrect one to do it, um, which I'm kind of saying that when I, at the same time, it's sort of my favorite molecule to study. So, <laughs> so it's sort of, I, I try to, I try to walk that, that balance beam when I teach and I talk about mitochondrial DNA. It's great to study. It's not a good one to use 
to self-identify or, or ethnically identify by any means. So how can one say, this is how I identify? Is it even important to identify genetically? I, I think, I think, I think the latter. I don't think it is uh, important. I think we can use it as a tool to study science. Um, I think it can, it will eventually help us um, in, in understanding sort of the interplay between your ancestry and, and medicine and health. It's going to come into play in now in the 2020s. I think we're going to start seeing a lot, a lot more medical work towards uh, overlaying with your genetic ancestry. But I, I don't think that that should be coming from you know, your DNA results from, from a, a company. Um, it should be more about your own sort of identity in your community. Um, also, your, your history, your family history, it should come from, from other things. But even that, I think, is going to vary from individual to individual. There are people, and, and, and I'm trying to talk about this without going too much down the, the, the slope of race, but some people want to talk about 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 race and some people rather not talk about, about race and they'll, they'll employ it when they can. I urge people not to equate DNA with race. And, and most anthropologists would agree with me that that is not the best way to do it. So, so it doesn't even make sense to do it. Yep. No, because, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And the reason I say that is because we are all mixed, as you said. I mean, we, there is no one pure nation any longer the migration of people everywhere has created this infusion of different nations, marrying different nations, that I'm not sure that there's any one people anymore that live in isolation to the point that they can say that they are a pure race. Is there? No, I think probably not. And um, and even if, if they, they do find groups that have been sort of completely isolated, um, we can sort of attribute sort of evolutionary factors to that and say, yes, they haven't mixed. The, the genes may have been isolated for a thousand years, 10,000 years. And that in itself is, is an interesting concept. But then assigning, I think assigning a uh, racial category to that is where we start sort of falling apart. Because you're absolutely right. People have been mixing um, for, for a long time. And all people have been moving across the earth for a very long time. So even trying to find an isolated group would be quite, quite difficult to do. Um, and, and it really would have no, in my, my interpretation would have very little meaning socially and culturally. It would be interesting to something to do uh, scientifically for, for, the, for the understanding of, of, of these forces of, of evolution, of, of gene flow, the movement of genes, or, or, or uh, genetic drift, which is sort of the isolation of a group um, or, or, or the movement of genes given uh, a small group moves or a small group becomes isolated from a larger group. Those, those, those patterns are very interesting for people like me, anthropologists, to study. But they don't necessarily have any, any real significance, I think, when it comes to, to the topic of race and the topic of, of ethnicity. For the same reasons that you said, that we all have a, a history, have a shared common history, and we have been mixing. Um, especially in the last, easily the last 500 years. Now, you know, you um, have said uh, the controversial word of evolution, and I believe in creation. And so 
your explanation of this population, a mixed population, as I described it, I believe that in creation, all the different nations of people, all the different genetic prints, if you will, were placed in there by God. And so from the very, very beginning, Noah's sons, one of them was was Asian, you know, the other one was Caucasian, you know what I'm saying? And then the other one was African. And so that all came even at a time when there was not this global transferring of national or international uh, marriages at the, at the time. So I don't think that it serves anybody any purpose to identify nationally. I appreciate very much the fact that you said we could identify like who we are, where we decide to call home and how we've lived. Right. Different things, right? We changed as human beings. We don't, we're not the same people all the time. We're constantly changing. I agree. And I think, I think um, that's sort of the, the major point here. I think um, that, uh, that, that sort of trying to create these sort of barriers between us. It's ultimately not, not what we should be doing with this new right. genetic data that we are, we're able to, to, to use. So. Okay. So why is your work so important, Miguel? Why do you take so much interest in the Marianas people? What is it that attracted you to this field? Those are all good questions. So I'm originally from Puerto Rico, um, and which people may know has a similar history, but it's slightly different prehistory or significantly different prehistory to to Guam and the Marianas. And, and I sort of, I, 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 I'm a student of history and, and I sort of like to find patterns and I like to find similarities and differences. And, and so growing up on an island and growing up in a place where, again, sort of race and ethnicity is, is in everybody's mind all the time in, in Puerto Rico because of um, the heavy Spanish influence, very heavy. And, and then more recent, the enormous uh, U.S. influence. It's a U.S. Uh, territory. Um, and, and we all look from Puerto Rico up north to the U.S. for questions and answers. And, and sort of discovering Guam during my grad school years through the help of Dr. Koji Lum, we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. was sort of a, was really eye-opening to me because um, it seemed like it was similar. And, and the people I was meeting one by one, I felt a connection to. And then I think I had a, a moment in 2013 where I was able to travel to Guam. And, um, and I had just published a paper in 2012, um, a paper, my first paper on, 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 on tomorrow history came out in that, that year, 2012. So I came here and, and I was welcomed by, by the people. I came in also having been an employee of National Geographic. That always helps when people say, oh, you're the National Geographic expert. And, and, uh, and then you also, Dr. Villar, who published this paper uh, last year. And so I felt really welcome. And, and the more people I met, I, I said, you know, I'm uh, I'm not tomorrow, but I am. Um, but I'm from Puerto Rico, and um, and I, I study diversity of, of groups of people, and and I like to sort of explore some of that work here in, in Guam. And I spent about a week in 2013 meeting people and enrolling people in the project. I fell in love with it in a sense. I, I really the people I met were were fabulous. It, it made me feel really comfortable, and um, 
food was, I had some good food. I had I met some, <laughs> some nice people. I got to travel around the island. That's another thing I, I love about working in sort of small islands. You get to go yeah. rent a car and I can go to the Northern tip and I can go to the Southern tip all on the same day. And it was very neat. And then um, a couple of years later, I was invited to give a, give a talk. Uh, you mentioned the 2016, that was about three years later um, or two and a half years later. I think it was early 2016 that I came back and, um, and met some more amazing people. I got to know uh, people at University of Guam and they made me feel very welcome. I, I gave a talk at the Mariana's History Conference. I did that twice, actually, once. And, and I believe the first one I did was 2013. I invited myself. And then when I came back in 2016, uh, they already knew who I was. And sort of I, uh, I was able to, um, to, to give a, a higher, a more recognized talk by then. But, um, but it, it was always sort of like people were very welcome. And, and people would say to me, so why are you so interested in this small corner of the world? And I said several things. It's sort of the history of it, um, the people, and sort of this, this sort of this sort of shared history, this sort of that, that Guam and Puerto Rico have. Are you up. saying that you identify with the people of Guam? I think I do to some respect. I would never say I, I, I identify. I, I think it would be a disservice to call myself anything from Guam. I'm, 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 I'm always a visitor when I go there, but I think sort of having that Spanish colonization and then having this sort of American territorial relationship with the U.S., um, I do feel that sort of connection, that connection, but that sort of a dual opposite sides of the world, but that, that, that sort of shared history between the two parts. And, um, and I feel special when I, when I go there and I, and I use that sort of that knowledge and I use that, that experience that I have from those two parts of the world to, to draw parallels um, in, in, in my studies. So that's why I sort of, I think I, I connect uh, because of sort of my experiences um, in a similar and yet opposite side of the world as it is in, in Puerto Rico. And that's where it stops from. And again, I've always been welcome. I've always been um, made, made feel very comfortable by, by people. By, by You've always treated me so well when I visited and my colleagues at the University of Guam always have of the people I've met um, in different parts of, of the island, especially Guam, but also in Saipan have made me right. feel incredible. So it's just the nature of being on an island. I'm not sure that, that we treat Miguel Villar any differently than any other visitor that comes here, <laughs> but you have to admit that you either like being on an island or you don't like being on an island. And I think when we feel that someone is appreciative of that, that he likes being around us and likes the food we eat or even being in a small island and find some, something of value to be curious about, I think that that's also something we feel. And so that's why there's a reciprocation of that kind of warmth. It's not yeah. one way. It, it also comes from you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think the sort of a brotherhood, in a sense, between these various parts of the world, and again, sort of a bring Puerto Rico and Guam comparison again, a siblinghood, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, because of the shared history. But, but then you have the very different prehistory, and that's where my my research has focused on um, in grad school and, and even even earlier about that story of, of who were the first Chamorro, which is different than the story of the first Tainos in the Caribbean. So right. you do have sort of a, 
you know, you, you have sort of a different prehistory and all of a sudden you have these layers of history that are quite similar once, once the Spanish almost uh, blurred, huh? came. almost blurred, trying to blur. Exactly. They've tried to blur the prehistory by layers of Spanish colonization and Spanish import of other people. In the case of Puerto Rico, they bought lots of people from Africa. And in, in the case of Guam, people were brought over possibly from the Philippines in different moments or other islands um, in, in the Micronesia came over. And then all of a sudden, 1898 hits and you have the superpower called the United States of America comes in and is the dominant force across both archipelagos of both parts of the world, island parts of the world. And then the last 125 years have been that U.S. We've been we've been living under the U.S. flag, both Puerto Rico and Guam, but right. in different ways. But similarly, still, I think so. Right. Right. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Now, let's talk about your special interest of this ancient DNA. We know that there have been digs here on Guam. We know that archaeology has done a wonderful job to inform us of periods that we would not have otherwise known had there not been construction along Tomum. Um, mm-hmm. and, but is it only from those digs that, that the studies are possible? There are different people who agree or disagree to the study of ancient remains. And when we say ancient, we're talking, you know, hundreds of years backwards, right? So is it from that that your study can be informed? Or further than that? Well, the ancient remains are a controversial topic and are, and are going to continue to be a controversial topic for a couple of reasons. Some people consider the remains uh, of the people or their ancestors, in a sense, um, sacred and, and the need to be preserved, need to be cared for and, and respected. And ancient DNA ultimately is a destructive process because to get the DNA, you have to you said sink your teeth. It's interesting you use the word tooth because for many years it was teeth that people would drill to get the DNA in. And, and, and the reason that it's destructive as opposed to you working with modern people where they're, they're willing to give you a little saliva, spit into a tube, no, no problem. I mean, that's still your DNA. Um, yeah, we, we did the, 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 the swab, right? When, when, when in 2013, that's what we used to use. So that is still sort of, you, you're sort of giving a very small and very replaceable part of your saliva, but you are sort of doing that. We, we need that because we, we study biology, we study part of life. Um, and then we don't, we can't get saliva, we can't really get, get blood as something replenishable from ancient remains. So ultimately you have to destroy a tiny bit of a tooth or a tiny bit of, of a bone to get to it. Um, and I understand why that would be, would be troublesome. And lots of projects have been stopped at that point because, because of that. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm full agreement with people um, when they say, no, I don't think uh, this should happen to these people. When we are able to do, get at some, some DNA, whether it's from a tooth or they, they do this other, uh, now they're, they're using even smaller, I'm talking grams of, of, of DNA. So very, very small amounts of bone powder um, from an inner ear bone called the petrous bone. When that is used, your, your chance of success is, is, is much, much higher. And it's been, doing, been done now in a way that doesn't destroy the integrity of, of, that, of that bone. 
Um, and then the tooth, when it was done back then, you might break off one of the roots off the bone and try to get to the center of it. So you would try to do it in utmost respect. Um, but that was ultimately the, way, the only way we know to get to those DNA of those people. And when we get to the DNA of, of those focus, because um, I mean, they were living at one point, we can actually say things um, in a very conclusive way. Whereas the work I was doing with modern DNA, we can try to look at what's around now in 2022 and infer guess at patterns from the past. Whereas with ancient DNA, we have something in the past and we can get to the biology of that person. And then sometimes we infer from things going further past, or we can compare the modern and, and the one from 2000 years ago, say, and then we can infer par- patterns of, of things that happen in between those two time periods. So it allows us to do that. But I, I stress to, to everybody that it needs to be done with complete um, engagement with the community, uh, complete you know, blessing and complete uh, approval from, from the community, especially the people who ultimately are the descendants uh, from those remains. And those we, we strongly believe are, are the people living in the Marianas today. And we know that from, we, we can guess that because of the DNA from, from modern people that the people more willingly give, but also from the, just doing a few people, you can see there is a connection between the ancient and, and the modern. And these were in a sense, ancestors. To, uh, to the living Chamorros. That said, any one person that lived 2,000 years ago may have contributed an infinitesimally small amount of DNA to somebody living today. So it could be somebody's ancestor, but the amount of DNA connecting them is, is uh, a fraction of 1%, most likely. So that said, it is your ancestor, and yet your connection biologically is, is, is not very strong. So then it becomes a question of your connection culturally or, or spiritually. Um, and th- that I can't speak to uh, as a genetic anthropologist, but I do respect it as best I can. So somebody feels they have strong spiritual connections or strong cultural connections to, to remains, then um, I think that's a moment where we can say, well, we, won't work, we will not work on these remains. And, uh, and, and people have been, began to do DNA extractions from the soil around a, a dig You've been able to get DNA that leaks at, at the time of death or after the time of death from a skeletal remains. People feel more comfortable, you know, fine, you don't, you can't drill into the skull or drill into the tooth, but you can drill, you can extract DNA from the soil that's right next to it. So we've been able to do that. And that technology is very young, but getting, getting better. And people may be able to you know, sometimes people are buried with, with an item. We might be able to get, get uh, some DNA from the item buried with that that individual clothing and other things like that. Um, so there's other ways to do it without um, destroying, partially destroying a, a tooth or a bone. When you talk about extracting DNA from the surrounding area, what about destruction of the <clears throat> immediate burial site over time? Well, moisture actually is more damaging to preservation, I would say, the dryness, because in the moisture, what happens in moisture is you, you're able to, to have more bacteria survive and more microorganisms that break down the bone. Oh. Um, you know, what happens if somebody, something dies out in the field, then um, like I'm talking about 
you know, here in here in the United States where I am right now, we have deer everywhere. When mm. a deer dies, you know, within a few days, the vultures are there. And when a few and after that, then you get other scavengers. And then eventually you get worms and insects and you right. get microorganisms. So that happens very, very quickly and very, very often in a humid environment, in a dry environment that may happen, um, but not as quickly. Um, and then uh, in, a, in a tundra or Arctic environment, it happens much, much less. And so the first ancient DNA ever done actually came from, you know, areas in Greenland or Alaska, or, or I guess nobody lives in Antarctica. So it's really areas really close to the North Pole because of preservation had to be that good. And now with the technology, especially working with these, working, drilling into the inside of a tooth or drilling into the inside of the petrus, um, is more successful to work in the tropics. Uh, because traditionally, the tropics have been a very difficult place to get ancient DNA, um, being right, right there in the tropics. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's fairly amazing that we are able to get ancient DNA. Um, that would have been unthinkable in, you know, 12 years ago, 2010, when ancient DNA was starting to, to become an option. Um, people said, yeah, but you'll never get to, to, to do it in tropical islands or tropical places. And fast forward to the 2020s, we're able to do it now. Um, and now the question has become, just because we can, should we do it? Mm. Um, and then we have to sort of talk about the ethics of, of ancient DNA, which is a very exciting topic that's being discussed throughout the world right now, because the technology is there and, and people are, are going to museums or going to, to you know, collections of archaeologists or bioarchaeologists saying, hey, um, can, I, can I sample DNA from all of these skeletons that you have? And, um, and I think it needs to be done uh, in a more systematic, cared for way. And again, with all the proper approvals and all the proper channels uh, addressed. So that's where the technology is now. We're able to do it in the tropics. Now we need to sort of make sure that when we do it, everybody is um, in agreement that it gets done and you have the proper authority, the proper care for these uh, ancient peoples. Because they were, in a sense, people at one point in time. Of course, of course. I mean, they're human remains, right? Exactly. What, so with the advancement of technology, where are we going with DNA? <clears throat> That's a good question. I, I, it's almost impossible to predict. Um, I think we're moving towards what they call the genomic era, where we actually do genomes, it's the whole DNA sequence of people. I was uh, meeting with a lab earlier this week and um, when it comes to a living person whose DNA is like some saliva or, or, or blood is quite easily replenishable, we can actually sequence the whole DNA sequence, meaning billions of points of data for an individual for, now we're talking a few hundred dollars. There's always a cost of lab. Uh, the sure. cost is becoming sort of the restrictive factor. In ancient DNA, it ha we have been able to do it, um, but it, it's much more costly and it's more difficult and difficulty also means it raises the cost. So I think within five or 10 years, we will be able to do genomic level work across ancient DNA samples. But then I also predict that we're going to have stronger um, ethical considerations. There'll be probably some protocols that are being worked on, but not quite in place yet protocols on how to deal with ancient remains. Um, in consultation with uh, the communities that live around the site where it was found, in consultation with uh, the curators or the maintainers in the museum, if it happens to come to the museum, archaeologists need to be consulted because they often 
um, can tell you much more than, than just the DNA alone. Um, and, and it's become, thanks to HDNA, it's become sort of a collaborative process. But exactly where the technology will be in five or 10 years, it's, it's hard to predict other than we will be able to read full sequences. And I think for living people, we will be able to, to sequence somebody's DNA the moment they're born or even before they're born and tell them something medically, tell, tell the parents something medically about them. We do some of that already with, uh, with amniocentesis and other types of tests that the pregnant women go through. But um, I think that's going to become more commonplace. Um, so in the medical field, we definitely see, see some advances in that direction towards genetic sequencing of, uh, of people and even doing medical care based on your DNA. So that, I think, is more clear path of where it's going in medical genetics. Anthropological genetics, uh, I think it's becoming more of a collaborative process. Um, but we, we are, every single paper that comes out, it's a, it's a more comprehensive DNA study and of more of more individuals and more DNA more longer DNA reads. So it's that that's where it seems like it's moving. So with the work that you're doing, we're going to see from an anthropological standpoint <laughs> the movement, the the people, what they ate, all those how they lived, etc. And even to the point where their food sources and their animals play a big part of that because that all shows up, right? What will this study inform other than the medical? The medical makes me excited because I married a man who was adopted as a a two-week-old infant. And Mm -hmm. although he's Austrian by genetics, he's never really met his natural parents. But he was adopted by a, back at the time, right after the war, they they kind of match you with who your parents are. So a French Canadian mother and a German father. And those are the the people that raised him. Now he Mm -hmm. identifies not as a German and not as a French Canadian, but an American because he was raised in the United States. And then at the age of five moves to Hawaii. So I think that my husband is a perfect example of someone who's not, doesn't genetically identify with a particular nation, because mm-hmm. even though he's Austrian, he doesn't know anything about Austria. We took a trip there. We went and saw the place, and it was very enlightening to see how as soon as we hit that airport and he was among his people, I lost him. I couldn't find him. <laughs> he looked just like the rest of them. It was so hard. <laughs> I, I looked around like, whoa, where's Bob? And then, I, and then he's standing there and he just blended right in, Miguel. Whereas everywhere else in the world, he stands out. He's tall. He's 6'1". Mm-hmm. He stands out. But in the place where he's from, whoosh, he was invisible. <laughs> that was so fascinating. It's like, where's Pop? <laughs> so I don't know exactly how from an anthropological standpoint all this genetic study is going to help what do you see in the future i think i would like to see a future where people want to embrace the science and the history of it and less and less so the racial or ethnicity side of it 
And um, because if they can do that, then I think they can, um, you know, they can get a better understanding of sort of their past in, in the shared um, history that we all have, as opposed to trying to find differences between people, try to find commonalities or similarities between people. And if we can do that, then I think we have succeeded. I think continue to be able to answer more questions when we, we work with, with more people, when, um, you know, the internet now allows you to quickly download a paper or, or get a paper of a new, a new, um, new data set or new, or new population that, that was studied. Um, you can get it almost before it's actually printed it, when it's still online. And the fact that, that you're getting people able to access the internet and get access to these papers and get access to, to researchers by email or something that, that was impossible to do, you know, a hundred years ago or 50 years ago, even then um, I think it'll become a more educated in a more accepting peoples to, to this type of work. Um, but I think there's always going to be individuals that try to use this to, to position themselves differently racially and, uh, and prioritize to get benefits over others based on DNA. And I think that it's sort of the wrong direction to take this in. So we need to educate people not to do that and try to prevent those things from, from taking hold. So <clears throat> I think the technology is going to continue to advance. We just need to keep up with the pace to set regulations and standards in, in, a, in a way that, that is done you know, responsibly and ethically. And that's where I think it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move. But you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's undeniable when if your DNA test, he doesn't identify as Austrian, but the DNA test said he was Austrian. All of a sudden he's there and people look like him. It is true. I mean, there is something about DNA that codes for, for your physical um, being. And that's, that's sort of undeniable. And, um, um, and that's what people, people see me and I identify as I get the thing Puerto Rican. People see me and don't, don't see that immediately. However, um, I, can, I may be able to pull out a, a, a DNA test report of myself and say, look at this 5% down here. And that's proof right there. Um, but people really, it's, that, that won't cut it. But the moment that I open my mouth and speak Spanish and that Puerto Rican twang, and I tell them how much I love this food, or I tell them where I grew up on this, this, uh, you know, this neighborhood of this town, people then sort of make a connection to you. So DNA can take you one direction. And I think it's really more about the, the personal connections that you make with people. That's really where I think we need to, we need to keep doing that. And, and so when I was able to make those personal connections with people in Guam, I think that went a long way um, uh, more than, than, than me. So saying something about my DNA um, similar or different than yours. So I hope I can do that. I hope I'm a very social person. So I hope I can keep, keep doing that if the Absolutely. pandemic allows. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I'm happy to hear that you prefer that people become more unified from the humanity side rather yeah. than, than carving out this small percentage to make them superior in one way or politically right in another so that their mm -hmm. resources are funneled because of that. Um, right. Because I think the damage is that they could lose out. What if they don't have that predisposition or genetic code that identifies them? Then what? 
They're going to change their narrative. Right. No, exactly. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, a, a wrong direction to go to change your narrative because of a DNA test. And I tell people that all the time. Um, and there's commercials in this country where say, you know, I, I thought I was this. I took a DNA test and now I'm this. So I need to go shopping for new clothes. Or something. I can't remember the exact commercial I saw on TV. But I said, no, that's not the purpose of a DNA test. The DNA test is just to educate yourself more. It doesn't need to be a life-changing test. First of all, it can't be. Right. I can't go and put in a kiln and say that I'm from Scotland, right? I mean, that doesn't, that's not what makes you. And I, I think right. that's, a very, that's a very glib or sarcastic commercial, okay. uh, maybe, maybe promoting to take the test. But being a recipient of the test myself, the only one that really commented was our youngest son. When he overheard you and I in our discussion, came in after you left here. And he said, you know, mom, I always did think you look like an American Indian. And I said, what? <laughs> he <laughs> said, your features are, are not tomorrow to him. As a, a little boy growing up, when he saw the chiseled face, if you will, uh, to him appeared more American Indian. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And I, I should probably send a photo. I've never been really dark. I've always had a very fair complexion. I don't know where that comes from, but I have been fair. So I'm pulling to something. And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the thing about genetics that I, I find. I have three grandchildren from the same parents. And while they look similar, they're all different look. Even my daughter, my older daughter's children one of them looks a little bit like the father with the mother's skin color, but the younger daughter looks like the mother with the father's skin color. And that's, that is what I love about genetics is that you could have children in a family that have that pull toward the recessive sides mm -hmm. rather than the dominant sides, but yet their children will pull the dominant from the recessive side. And I find <laughs> that so interesting that to me is, is the beauty of the intermarriages, you know, when you can't, mm. when you can look at a person, but you can't tell what he is. I think that's mm. beauty. When I can tell what you are, that doesn't say much for or bode well for your genetics because your parents <laughs> have been marrying the same generation after generation after generation. But if you have children where you can't even tell what they are, wow, I think that's, that's really diversity to me. Yeah. No, I, I, I sort of agree. And then sort of there's, there's something about DNA recombination and the way DNA um, mixes and, and, and gets passed on that, that creates this sort of diversity. And then when you get, like you said, children of, of parents who come from different, vastly different places, then you get even mixtures that maybe have never been seen before right. or com combinations that, that um, are unique, um, are unique or maybe, you know, coming together. Ev ultimately everybody is a new combination of every single time that they're born um, genetically and, and obviously and, and individually and, and culturally and spiritually, I think so. But, mm -hmm. but sometimes when you get people whose DNA has been separated geographically for thousands of years coming, coming together, you get sort of combinations that you've never gotten before. And it, it could be quite amazing to see. And there's a lot of sort of 
um, beauty still hidden in, in, in sort of the mixture of, of peoples. And again, I am, I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of this interplay of genetics and culture. That's why I could never be a pure geneticist. I think I'm much more an anthropologist, the study of people, understanding people. Um, my, my MO, my modus operandi is, is genetics, yes. But I am, a, I am a people person first, and that's what I study, and that's what I, um, I try to explain. I also have a degree in, in science writing because I, I take passion in trying to explain these often complicated subjects in, in a way that are, are, comp- are easy to comprehend. Yeah. So some of these papers, I said people have access to papers. In many cases, that, that's, not a bar- that's not breaking the barrier enough because some of the papers are, are written in very complicated ways. So I encourage people to sometimes maybe summarize them or bring in people like me that can take a complicated subject and try to explain it in a more simple way. And I think that's where we're going to reach hundreds and hundreds of people um, with the message. Because again, if, we, if we're looking at papers that are extremely complex and, and talk about you know, symbols and charts and graphs that people don't know, you, you lose sort of meaning there. I don't appreciate those charts and graphs that are so intrinsic in academic papers. I don't, right. I don't have a narrative because the narrative, you can break it down. But yep. what makes them complex is when you have a whole sentence that's a paragraph long. <laughs> <laughs> that's the complex part. And that's what needs to be broken down because the, the thoughts are so, they're, they're connected, but nobody writes like that in, in lay. Right terminology, right? So you literally have to break it down. And that's when that kind of skill is important. But the conversation continues now on the KUAM Podcast Network with Arlene Live. You know, we we talked about something that I want to get back to, and that's the the three identifiers of, of a the origin of people. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the linguistic part. I've, I've known and have had the privilege of working with wonderful scholars as well in the linguistic part, the archaeology and the genetics. I'm very, very blessed to have this kind of connection with people like you who make this kind of study and, and mm-hmm. can can articulate this the way that you do. I've been with Lori Reed and I've worked with Donald Topping and um, unfortunately, with Donald Topping, I, I worked with him toward the end of his life. And so I didn't have a, a lot of time with him. But mm-hmm. but I did, I, I did have the opportunity of speaking with him about the Chamorro language, because he spent a significant amount of time and interest as well with the people of Guam and the Marianas and put together what, what we refer to as the Topping Dictionary, but it's really not a dictionary. It's a word list. And he had always hoped that we, the people of the, the Marianas, would work on a, a dictionary. It's not a simple feat. And then you have people like Bellwood and, of course, Mike Carson. Mike and I are also very close, and I've always promoted his work. I mean, the list of archaeologists that I've worked with, what a privilege I've had to be able to do ethnography work with them. I've just, that's opened a whole field for me. But when it comes to Putting those three together, the most recent report, uh, work that Mike Carson did was about the migration through mm-hmm. the Philippines into the Mariana Islands. 
I know that you're going to have a paper coming out pretty soon on that. So I don't want you to give anything away until that's vetted. But can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I can. <laughs> I could touch it a little bit without sort of going into too much, too much okay. detail. Um, so there are different sort of perspectives on, on the peopling of the Marianas and the first settlers in the Marianas, um, whether the connection is stronger to Northern Philippines, Luzon. Um, some people have suggested Southern Philippines. Others, uh, like myself, have suggested uh, it's probably close to Eastern Indonesia, the Wallachia area or the North Moluccas. Some even people have even suggested um, maybe even Japan to the north or, or, or other parts of Oceania to the south and to the, to the east. But the stronger contenders remain to be islands or regions of, of Southeast Asia. And, um, and so some of the arguments coming from archaeology um, pinpoint a little more of a connection to, to the Philippines, um, which may be based on the amount of archaeology or samples or type of pottery, ceramic, whatever the, the, the object of study is that draws a connection, similarities between, say, the Philippines and the Marianas. Um, but at the same time, very little or limited has been down and done in other islands. And that's one argument that I've always, always made is that um, there is a connection uh, ultimately between the Philippines and the Marianas, but I don't necessarily believe that it's sort of ancestor-descendant relationship. It's more possibly like a distant cousin or something that share common ancestor at some point. Uh, and that said, then we may need to look at other places, especially the undersample and the understudied places in Southeast Asia, most likely. Um, I think there's not enough evidence to, to suggest Japan or anything like that or other parts of, of the Pacific. But I think there is some evidence starting to come more and more from that part of the world, namely Eastern Indonesia and, and Wallachia, like the islands of, of Wallachia. Um, the North Moluccas being the, the, the closest to the Marianas, closest to Micronesia, those islands. Little evidence is starting to come from there. Um, and some of it in the form of, of archaeology and some of it in the form of genetics. And the third one that you mentioned, archaeology genetics, the, the first one, but the linguistics is, is a fascinating one. Um, it's often been used to, to sort of make connections between different groups. But that's sort of based in a shared ancestry type of, of relationship that's similar to genetics and it can become arbitrary different linguists have different ways to measure things and different stresses on on you know syllables versus words versus grammar and so forth so therefore depending on the linguist you might get a, a slightly different language tree hmm. ultimately people agree that it's uh, the Timor language is a uh, um, Austronesian language which connections to Southeast Asia that that would put Japan out of the question and probably New Guinea to some degree out of the question because those are Papuan languages and different right. languages in Japan. So that, that does support this Southeast Asia connection. Um, and then within the uh, Austronesian, you have uh, a Western Malayo-Polynesian, they call it, branch in which the Chamorro language falls. And that puts it either like a sibling or cousin relationship with some of the languages in the Philippines. And again, a sibling, possibly cousin relationship with some uh, ancient languages from Indonesia. And so that doesn't clear it up completely in my, in my view, but it creates a scenario that maybe those places are where archaeology and genetics focus the work. Um, and so my, my work that I published uh, in 2012, and I presented a few times in Guam in 2016, 17, and so forth, um, suggests that we need to be looking more in, 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 in Southeast Asia, namely the islands of 
of Eastern Indonesia uh, for answers. The paper, not part of my work, but a paper came out in 2021, just last year, um, that was the first mitochondrial study that I've seen to go to some of these islands in Eastern Indonesia. And it was run by Indonesians based in Jakarta. It was, it was well done, uncomprehensive. And, and that showed my evidence. It showed, this is not my work, but it showed a stronger connection to the Marianas than anything that's been published from, from the Philippines. So again, sort of supporting the hypotheses that myself and others had uh, 10 years ago, 2012 is when I published my paper saying that maybe that's the place we should be looking. Um, one of the populations they looked at in that, in that 2021 paper was uh, the islands of Halmahera and North Moluccas is one of the first mitochondrial DNA studies ever to be done from people from those islands. Again, geographically, those are the closest ones to Micronesia. And also, by looking at maritime sort of connections and island connections, it's also the closest to Palau. And name of Palau, you, you could ch- island hop distantly, but go Palau to Yap to Guam, in a sense. There is sort of a chain of islands, small and distant, but they are there as a connection to the Philippines, which require... Right. A much larger ocean crossing, which environmentally and sort of geologically, I think, in, um, in given the air currents and water currents, is, is less likely, in my opinion, than something that could follow some kind of um, some kind of trench in the water, maybe some coral and some islands um, in that direction from kind of the, the North Moluccas up the chain. Like so, island hopping? Island hopping is, is much, and that's what we see in the Caribbean. So when I study the Caribbean, we, we feel pretty confident that the people in the Caribbean, one of the major movements was an island hopping movement from South America up the chain of the Lesser Antilles to Puerto Rico and to the Greater Antilles. So would a similar pattern have been able to Micronesia? I, I think it's quite viable. We don't have much data from Palau. We don't have much data from, from Yap and some of the other smaller islands in between. We have some. Um, thanks to myself and others in, in the Marianas and a few other islands further for the west, Pompeii and, and, and uh, Kosrae and some other islands in Micronesia. But it's really an understudied part of the world. And likewise, Indonesia is vastly understudied. So I think with these new papers that are coming out led by Indonesians and some of the work that we're doing, I think we might see some stronger connections. But again... It's nothing, nothing to completely refute what others done. I think it should be more of a, of a conversation. And I think there needs to be more work to be done to help answer some of those questions. And I think there will be. I think there's this new generations of, of people uh, coming in to do more work in Indonesia, more work in sort of Palau and Yap, and also other parts of, of the Philippines. I think Southern Philippines is geographically closer and, um, and possibly genetically um, more similar to, to Indonesia and to Micronesia than, say, northern Philippines. So I think that is a huge archipelago with, it would have been dozens and not hundreds of, of different ethnic groups, and today is millions of people that live there. So okay. even the Philippines itself is vastly understudied. So I think we can keep putting out hypotheses um, for, for years to come, and I'm, I'm pretty excited and feel more and more confident that that the more we look in Eastern Indonesia, the more answers we're going to get. So think, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Isn't the uh, hypothesis that Northern Luzon was sort of like a bridge of that migration come from the fact that they 
are suggesting a Taiwan dispersal? Right. So the Taiwan dispersal has been one. Um, it's been written about uh, for, for decades. And you mentioned, you suggested uh, the, the great scholar Peter Bell, what I had a right. forgetful uh-huh. moment there. Um, he's been talking about that. I think it's a very valid, a very valid hypothesis because there are some connections linguistically, sure. Yes. And some less connections archaeologically. Ling- genetically, again, I think the relationship seems to be more of a distant cousin relationship between mm-hmm. Northern Philippines and even further distant with, with Taiwan. So I think the theory is that is probably the closest direct line coming from mainland Asia. Right. You can imagine migrations originating in mainland Asia, China, then obviously t- Taiwan and then northern Philippines be a route in from the mainland to the islands. The other one being from the peninsula of Southeast Asia through the larger Western Indonesia, namely so Sumatra, Borneo, Java, and yeah. then island hopping across. And we think that's another possibility. And, and why not both? It's possible that people came in both. And we think very prehistorically, the first humans to come into Southeast Asia possibly came from, from that region, from Southeast Asia to, to the larger islands, which at that moment were still connected to Southeast Asia. And there were separate migrations that came um, from mainland Asia through Taiwan, the Philippines. And then they may have met, they may have mixed some may have met, met and mixed before some of them headed in, uh, to the islands of Micronesia. There could have been an uneven mixing. That's a, sort of the interesting part to me. What were these prehistoric encounters of people, possibly in the Philippines or possibly in Indonesia, or maybe even they met up in, in uh, New Guinea? Because New Guinea itself was, we have evidence of people living there 40, even 50,000 years. So that's a long time of a possible mixing of people in and, and gene shifting and, and interacting of different cultures. So I think there's many, many ways. And in sort of the, the hypothesis set up by, um, by Bellwood a long time ago and others um, was, a, was great with the evidence given at that time. But I think now we see new evidence that says that's part of the story, but it's not the complete story. I find it interesting too in the Micronesian's uh, history, the pre-war history where the Chamorros moved down, including my grandparents, great-grandparents rather, moved their families from Guam into Yap and into Palau. And then the Chamorros that migrated to Yap, I flew to Australia and interviewed the second generation that moved from Yap to PNG. And they were the plantation representatives of the German administration. And then when time came that PNG wanted to be independent, they said, all these expats have to get out of here. They gave them the option to come back to the Marianas or to accept a citizenship in Australia. Of course, living under the crown for so many years, they stayed with Australia. And then Bob's work through the Olympic Committee, we were going down there and I said, listen, I would like to stay an extra two weeks, if you don't mind, after your meeting (laughs) so that I can interview these people who have uh, Chamorro blood in them and talk about what that history was like when they were in PNG during the German administration. And so I I was able to do that. And uh, and what what a privilege that was. I found it interesting, Miguel, that they retained all the Chamorro words 
So the body parts, the head, the hands, the butt, the, you Interesting. know, and be, yeah, they even knew what the outside bathroom was in Chamorro. So even though they couldn't converse with me in the Chamorro language, there were uh, songs that they had memorized that had been passed down called Cantan Samarita that was passed down from their parents that they sang even when they were in PNG before the war. <laughs> Many of them survived the war, uh, World War II in PNG, and then moved down to Australia. So this dispersal, I mean, people are going to constantly move. People are going right. to move for different reasons at different times. And so I think that's the beauty of what you're saying to me is that I hate to see the DNA study be used to put a fingerprint on you that's going to make you different than everyone else when there really is no difference between you and everyone else. Right. And I think that that is uh, that harkens back to times when people were wanting to use DNA as, as sort of a, a marker right. um, to, to, to sort of exclude people. Um, and, and I think it's a dangerous path to go I down. Do and, and I, 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 I love working with DNA, but I really do not want to see it sort of being used in that manner. So I, I, you know, I talk about it and then I try to make caution and say with the reason, use, reason with yeah. its use and its purpose. Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene live when we come back. From broadcast sales to marketing and public relations, from newspaper columnist to talk show host, sound challenging enough for you? Not for Arlene Live, who was president of an advertising and marketing agency, then a newspaper managing editor, broadcast talk show host, and investigative reporter. All that in just 20 years. Now she's back as an ethnographer, oral historian, documentarian, birder, and podcast host on KUAM's Podcast Network. Tune in and learn the history of Itautautano, the people of the Mariana Islands and Micronesia. She's personal, she's local, straight up, and so much more. She's Arlene Live, now on the KUAM Podcast Network and your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Amazon Music and Google Podcast and Micronesia Publishing on YouTube. Now, let me ask a question that, that has come up. From a historical standpoint, when the Spanish were here under the Jesuit rule, if you will, mm -hmm. they, they reduced the people from the Northern Mariana Islands to Guam to control right. them, right? And at that period, there was a small contingency of individuals, Chamorros, who suffered from leprosy that were that remained in Saipan. And we know from historical records that the, the governor was very concerned about the resources that were for them, for their livelihood. When the Carolinians lost their atolls over, you know, some typhoon that wiped everybody out, there were the two migrations that came, one came to Guam, the other one straight up to Saipan. The first migration that came to Guam, when they got the paperwork or the approval from the governor here that they could go up and reside, they were told that at some point the Chamorro is going to come back to their home. This is their home. But the reason I'm bringing this up to you is when you have these genetic uh, these human remains that are found along the shoreline in, in Guam or in Saipan, are they all the same? 
or do they distinguish differently in, in the DNA studies? There are some differences uh, for sure. And I think you see, so I've seen some of the data and I think this is the, the, the larger paper that's going to come out later this okay. year um, that shows some, some lineages or some patterns that are, that are different between some of the samples in Saipan and some of the samples in, in Guam. Um, and, all, and there are also some differences between some very ancient uh, some specimens that go back um, you know, 2,000 years or more and some of the more recent ones that are from what they call the Lati period or the more recent um, period right before contact with, with the European um, and the Spanish colonists in the 1500s. So you're going you're gonna to see some, some variation. And, um, and as a geneticist, I need, I need to be, so do my homework and read the archaeology. But now I'm realizing more and more to read the history. So you just accounted all these, these, these historical things that happened in the last few hundred years, movements up and down the, the Western Micronesia, Palau, Yap, but also all the way to PNG. And, and back and, and, and typhoons that push people or move right. people to relocate. So we have to do our due diligence and study those things. I, I spent 2019, my last time in Guam, I spent part of my time at the, the Micronesia Area Research Center doing research on boats, uh, Spanish boats that were coming over from Mexico, we believe, um, and bringing people over. I wanted to find out who the people were, how many were coming, right. because those things actually could impact um, the, the genes of, of those that are already in residence, especially if you have very few people and you have a large boat come over with hundreds of people. Right. Um, th th there could be some mixture that, that now, fast forward to 2020, is, is, is marked in people's DNA from those mixtures. So we need to sort of understand the history as well as the archaeology and the linguistics, um, and you can't take any one of them alone at face value. But I, I can't say too much about what's coming out in, in the papers, but it is a, a fairly comprehensive look in, in, um, and uh, we've, we, we continue to sort of do outreach and communication with the people in these, these islands, especially Guam and, and Saipan about, about the work to make sure that the people on board. And I know you were uh, part of that talk that we gave um, last year, and, uh, and I believe there'll be more to come um, yeah, I had many questions. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there are two papers coming out, one that's going to be out maybe April and the other one is later, more comprehensive. I'm, I'm working on the, the one coming out in April should be fairly comprehensive, but looking mostly at the ancient DNA that we talked okay. about. Okay. And then uh, I myself, I'm, I'm working on a paper um, and I've been working for many years based on some of the National Geographic genographic data and looking at the more historical period. So some of the last things we're talking about having to do with history in Spanish influence and so forth will be part of a second paper. I'm hopefully coming out, and that's what I'm focusing some of my efforts on. Okay, I'm, I'm actually I'm part of both papers, but I'm leading the second one. Right. Okay. So, so going back real quickly, and uh, before, because I think we've we're probably at the end of our discussion here, but this the reason that I bring up the Carolinian migration is that I don't think you can do a study in the Mariana Islands without that inclusion from the historical standpoint. Because what you said earlier punctuates it for me. I mean, it only makes sense that a migration that island hops is mm -hmm. more convenient than one that goes against the current, right? right? So I would venture to think that over the expanse of the populating or peopling of the Mariana Islands, 
that a trading or a connection with the people that are down in the Western Micronesia uh, mm-hmm. occurred. Right. It, it's impossible to think that we were not connecting or trading with people from Yap or from people with Palau or from Pompei. From a linguistic standpoint, I believe we're closer to the Yapis from the Austronesian speaking people than we are mm-hmm. to the Palauans. But there's no doubt that there's been a, a continuation of trading or maybe even intermarriages, you know, that have occurred before the Spanish came here. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it would be um, too simplistic to think that people would settle the Marianas and then um, not have any connection with any other islands for thousands of years. Um, however, the mitochondrial DNA remains different between the Marianas and Yap, between the Marianas and, and some of the other atolls, and very different between the Marianas and, and PNG um, mm-hmm. and, and even Palau. So they they must have been moving, um, and possibly there were some intermarriages. Um, maybe not not enough to sort of change change, it. The, change the genetic composition, but ultimately. Um, islanders survive often by by trading and moving around in, 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 the, in the networks they set up across you know thousands or hundreds of miles of ocean sometimes. So I, I think I've talked to Dr. Uh, Russ Hunter Anderson about this as well. She's a strong believer of these sort of interconnections. Um, and I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, the languages were probably close enough that you could understand each other and people would have people by that time, by 2000 or even more recent 1,000 years, there were still, no connection to Europe or anything, but people had vessels mm-hmm. that were good enough and, and had the technology to navigate ocean distances quite well. So, so I think it would be foolish to think that there was not any sort of connection. But that doesn't take away, I think, from the fact that that the, the mitochondrial DNA, especially of the Chamorro people, is is different. Um, so there was some mixing, but they sort of they seem to have maintained um, a unique signature that you don't see. Um, in, in There's Palau something and, special yeah. about Chamorro people. I, I, absolutely. Um, and then that gives us a chance to, to find, again, you're not going to find the identical same ones, but you might find cousin lineages or relative or related lineages in other places. And I think we still need to do a much better, better job at that. So. Okay. So we talked about the recap since 2012. Uh-huh. We talked about the genographic project. We talked about new technologies about the papers that are coming out. And I hope that I'm going to be able to get it as soon as everybody makes it public. The continuity versus replacement. Well, that's what I think what we're talking about now. So yes. you, so, the, so the ancient DNA um, paper that's coming out does suggest some continuity between at least the earliest settlers um, and, and now. Um, however, um, you, you pointed out that these are islands, susceptible typhoons, um, I know, I know uh, Guam and, and the Northern Marianas have recently seen typhoons in the last five or 10 years enough to, to do some major damage. And it would have done probably even more damage in prehistoric times. So it's, so there is some population replacement that must have happened. However, um, I think Guam is, if I'm mistaken, the largest island in Micronesia, probably the one which is, has the most resources. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that we see the least amount of replacement in an island that's more self-sustainable than say the smaller islands so that i think is going to become a, a question moving forward whether 
there is a continuity that goes back to the first settlers um, or whether you see replacement. Um, and if you don't see replacement in, in Guam, why is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, has it, has, does it have to do with the fact that it's a, a larger, more uh, resourceful island than, say, um, Rhoda, Saipan, and Tinian, or and certainly more so than the atolls of, uh, of the outer islands of Yap and, and so forth that are much smaller and, and less resourceful? So those questions, I think, are going to come into play soon. Right. And that's a very good point that you make, because based on everything that I've learned from Ross Hunter Anderson and Darlene Moore, was that when they were populated, these movements continued, but then at some point, the beaches showed up and at some point made it easy for them to, because the island was rising, it made it easy for them to come on island, if you will. But there's no way that the atolls that were down in the Chuki, Satoa, all those areas, they hadn't even been formed yet at the time that the Chamorro people were already here. So you cannot create a narrative and pull it out of the air. It has to be substantiated by facts and facts lead us to know that when these people were traveling, exploring, they were marking all these different islands and the passages so that ships wouldn't get all stuck and things like that. And I really appreciate that part of it. So it's really important that the history be included as one of the four to be able to identify the origin of a particular people. I think history, and, and I think you're also hinting at these sort of uh, more environmental and geological patterns, yes. right? We need to be we need to be consulting with uh, um, paleo environmentalists that can tell us about the rise and fall of islands uh, and, and and sort of the history of, of an island, a high island like like Guam versus a atoll, like you said, in the Satawal and, and Chuk and others like right. that. Right, they um, didn't even exist. How can right. you claim to be there first if you weren't, exactly <laughs> if you weren't even your homeland wasn't there? So exactly. I've brought this up to the attention of some historians. And I said, when you speak to a Carolinian, how do they identify? They identify as Rafaloish. They don't ever say I'm tomorrow. Right. When you speak to a tomorrow and you ask him how you identify, he doesn't say Rafaloish. He doesn't say Caucasian. He says tomorrow. Right. So uh, by their own identification, Forget their DNA, forget anything else. By their own identification, they say who they are. And I think that that's important to put into that mix when you're doing it. And it's not a right or wrong. It's just how they identify. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so we the summary. What does all this work tell us about the Micronesian region? More specifically, the Marianas that we have not yet said. I think we've, we've covered a lot. I think, like I said, more, more is going to come out this year. I'm excited to, to be a part of that. I'm excited to get a chance to travel again, um, hopefully this year, 2022, whether it's the summer or the fall, to, uh, to the Marianas and, and sort of share some of this information. I think we are going to see maybe greater collaborations come out. I'm trying to talk to some other groups working in Indonesia to see if we can see more information and more collaborations there. So I think that is going to come out. But as far as the summary of where we are, I think these hypotheses will continue to, to exist. And I think the discussion is going to grow. And, and I hope to stimulate excitement even within the tomorrow community. I'm, I'm, I'd like to go visit again and, and meet students at UOG and, right. and even high school students to tell them about this work and, and get them interested. Like I said, 
I identify very closely with lots of the people I met in Chamorro, but I'm, I'm from the other side of the globe. I'm from mm. the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and um, it, it would be good to see more interest in, in anthropology come from Chamorro who want to grow and study this. And, and, and uh, if, if that's something that interests students, I would be more than happy to share my email and share my network and resources with them. Because I think it's, it's neat for me to study and identify. It's mm. even better for somebody who, who this is sort of the history of, of, of their own people that they, again, talking about identity, they identify with as well. So I'm hoping to see that develop. We'll get some, some undergraduate students, become graduate students, become professors on the same material coming from Guam and the Marianas. Why don't you share for the listening audience, share your email address in case anybody who spends the entire time that we've been speaking (laughs) here really dig their, dig their teeth into this. What is your email address that they can reach you? So my name is Miguel Valar. My email address is Miguel Valar 14. So it's my name. Those 11 letters together, uh, M-I-G-U-E-L-V-I-L-A-R-1-4 at gmail.com. That's actually the, the one I check the most and it shows up on my cell phone. Okay. And um, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, so what is the 14? A, what's, a, what's reference to the 14? Is that when you got your <laughs> PhD? <laughs> when I was, no, I was 2010. I was going to say, no, I was, I was more older than 14 years old when I got my PhD. <laughs> I meant 2014. I know, I know. I was like, I'm not a super genius. <laughs> but anyway, that would Pretty have been close. <laughs> Thank you. So what, what is no, the reference to the 14? 14. That's one of my favorite number. But also, um, again, so I'm a people person. I like to meet people. It's the only number I know that you flip it upside down and says, hi. Right? H-I, right? <laughs> You're corny. That's what, <laughs> That's what I tell people. And they, they like that answer. That's um, a good one. And also, I think when I tried it first, one was taken, two was taken. And I was like, I'm not just going to randomly pick a number. I want to pick the number. So I used Miguel Valar and 14. Got it. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no other rhyme or reason. It's just, it's yeah. just you just weren't thing. You weren't going to go up to escalate until they got an approval. Exactly. I'm going to pick the number myself. Hey, that worked. And I've always tell people it's my favorite number. So there you go. You learned something yeah. about me there. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm always curious. I'm the Y kid, you know. My mom says that the first thing out of my mouth, why? Why are we doing this? Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And I look forward to both papers and and updates on Zoom so that we can continue to host you on our podcast show. Thank you so much, Arlene. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And yeah, we'll be in touch. And and please share with your audience uh, this in in, in my email. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, you're okay. gonna be you're gonna be the first guest in March and mess tomorrow. Well, that? thank you. Okay, have a good day. You too. Bye bye. You've been listening to Arlene live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Join her next podcast for an all new edition. You can catch Arlene live anytime at any of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, and Google Podcast, and at Micronesia Publishing on YouTube. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. Email Arlene at arlene at arlenelive.com. Thanks for listening.